good evening, everyone. And it's good to see all of you here at this meeting. Thank you for the introduction, Dr. Hosel. Yes, I started here at Southern as a student 20 years ago, so I'm feeling my age a little bit. I was a teenager when I came here, so I'm not quite that young anymore. And I think, Dr. Hosel, you started here as a teacher a year after I began as a student, so um, the years have moved along quickly here. But it's certainly a privilege to be here for this meeting and to see all of you here. So before we start this presentation, I just want to offer a word of prayer to ask for God's guidance as we go through this presentation. Father, we thank you for the soon approaching Sabbath hours. We thank you that we can study such a magnificent book, the culmination of all of Scripture in the last book of the Bible. And I pray that we will gain deep insights this week and that we'll strengthen our walk with you as we prepare for the end of this world. This is my prayer now in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So the, the brochure mentions that the title for this presentation is Living in the Sixth Seal, Seventh Church, and Seventh Trumpet. Another title for this could be Revelation Sanctuary Theme. When you look at the book of Revelation, a lot of times what I have found as I dialogue with Seventh-day Adventists is that what we know as a people about the book of Revelation is that there is a great controversy in chapter 12 that there's two beasts in Revelation 13 that foretells of a Sunday law that is coming, and there's the three angels' messages in chapter 14, and a lot of that comes from our knowledge based on going to a standard Adventist prophetic seminar. And while all of that is definitely very good, there is so much more to the book of Revelation than just some of those elements. And what you're going to see when, as we go through this particular presentation is that the first half of the book of Revelation sets the table for us to understand the great controversy of chapter 12 and the great final crisis with the two beast powers and the mark of the beast crisis in chapter 13 and the three angels' messages and the 144,000 and the great harvest of chapter 14. When you understand what Jesus is doing in the sanctuary in the first half of the book. When you see what Jesus is doing in the sanctuary in the first half of the book, then the rest of the book makes a lot more sense. And I just have to say that as, at the outset of this presentation, I'm just so thankful for the special understanding that God has blessed our church with as Seventh-day Adventists when it comes to our prophetic message. We do not follow cunningly devised fables we didn't just make this theology up to cover up the great disappointment. This is a connected, harmonious message that is designed to prepare a people for the end of time. So just a few quotes as we get into this message. Why do we study prophecy? Why do we study books like Daniel and Revelation? Testimonies to Ministers, page 116. Those who eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God will bring from the books of Daniel and Revelation truth that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
They will start into action forces that cannot be repressed. Now, brothers and sisters, the forces that cannot be repressed are described especially in Revelation chapter 18, verse 1, where an angel comes down from heaven having great power. The earth is lightened with his glory. This is the loud cry under the power of the latter rain. That is the future of Adventism. And the future of Adventism is developed when we as God's people, as we eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God, realize that the books of Daniel and Revelation are not simply describing beasts and horns. And yet that's sometimes the only thing some people know about Daniel and Revelation. There is far more to the book of Revelation than beasts and horns. Great Controversy 423, the subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of, of 1844. It opened to view a complete system of truth connected and harmonious. And I'll continue, you can read the rest of the quote later. Just continuing on, Testimonies, Volume 5, page 575. The great plan of redemption as revealed in the closing work of these last days should receive close examination. The scenes connected with the sanctuary above should make such an impression upon the minds and hearts of all that they may be able to impress others. All need to become more intelligent in regard to the work of the atonement which is going on in the sanctuary above. How many need to become more intelligent? All of us. Continuing. When this grand truth, the truth of what Christ is doing in the sanctuary above, is seen and understood, those who hold it will work in harmony with Christ to prepare a people to stand in the great day of God, and their efforts will be successful. That's what we need to be focusing on. There's a lot of different things, a lot of different ideas of what the church needs to be doing, but what we need to be doing is working in harmony with Christ to prepare a people to stand in the great day of God. Should we not be doing that? And if we work in harmony with Christ, we will be successful by the grace of God. Now, we are going to look at the, the sanctuary message in the book of Revelation. And when you see how the book of Revelation so clearly describes the movement of Christ through the holy place into the most holy place, it becomes a very fascinating study. And one of the things that you'll see is that we gain a deeper understanding of Jesus as we see his work in the book of Revelation through the sanctuary. Now, as Seventh-day Adventists, we have a pretty clear understanding of the earthly sanctuary model, which is a shadow of what the heavenly sanctuary is like. It's a type of what the, earth, the heavenly sanctuary is like. And we have three main compartments, the outer courtyard, the holy place, and the most holy place, as you can see on this diagram up here. Now, when we look at these three apartments, what I'm going to show you is that all three of these apartments are very clearly described in the book of Revelation, and Jesus is found in each one of these apartments as we go through the book of Revelation. So, when you look at the book of Revelation, you see the outer courtyard, then you see the holy place, and then you see the most holy place. That would describe the pathway of the priest 
in their work in the sanctuary. And where does the work finish? Obviously in the most holy place. So where do you think some of the most interesting information about Christ with respect to the sanctuary is found in the book of Revelation. Well, you'll find that the elements in the book of Revelation, the passages in the book of Revelation that describe what Christ is doing in the most holy place become extremely relevant. And we're going to look at that here in the next few minutes. So let's move forward here. So we're going to look at where Christ is at in the courtyard through the book of Revelation, where he's at in the holy place through the book of Revelation, and where he's at in the most holy place. So, let's keep moving forward here. Jesus is described in the courtyard, in the first place in Scripture, and and Ken has already mentioned that this evening, in Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, where it says, And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals. And then verse 6 describes Christ. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain. Now the lamb was slain in the courtyard of the sanctuary. And Jesus is described as the lamb who had been slain. Now, this isn't the only time in the book of Revelation that Jesus is described as the lamb who had been slain. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, describes Jesus as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And, of course, this refers back to the typology that we heard about earlier this evening. John 1, 29, where John the Baptist says, Behold the lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So Jesus is described as the lamb who had been slain, and that's reminds of us as the readers of the book of Revelation that Jesus came through the courtyard of the sanctuary, and the courtyard of the sanctuary in type, anti-type, the anti-type is his ministry here on this earth, culminating with his death on the cross. That should be pretty straightforward and basic to understand. But we're going to continue. Interestingly, when you get to Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 to notice what it says, and there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. So you, this is describing the 1260-year time period from 538 to 1798 where God's people are persecuted during the times of the Gentiles. And it said during that time period, we're no longer in the courtyard. That has passed off the scene, so measure it not. That is the times of the Gentiles. That tells us that Jesus is not in the courtyard anymore when we get to the book of Revelation. And we're going to see that as we go forward. Yes, his work in the courtyard is referenced back to. It's, it's the grand culmination of everything that happened in the Old Testament leading into the New Testament. Without Jesus' death, nothing else matters. But once Jesus accomplishes his work in the courtyard, he moves forward. And that's where we as Seventh-day Adventists have a corner on the rest of the Christian world who is still camped out in the courtyard. Now, the courtyard 
is an amazing thing where Christ died for the sins of the world, but he didn't stay there. And the 144,000 follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth, right? We want to be part of the 144,000, so we don't stay camped out in the courtyard. We follow Jesus by faith. We follow the Lamb of God by faith and move forward by faith to see where Jesus is. So let's keep moving. Jesus then can be found in the holy place. He's not only in the courtyard, we find him in the holy place. Now, I'm going to give you a preview of where you, we are going so that you will have a, a glimpse of what we're doing here. When you look at the first half of the book of Revelation, basically Revelation 1 through 11, you have the seven churches, the seven seals, and the seven trumpets. And what I'm going to show you is that the churches, the seals, and the trumpets correlate with all of the articles of the furniture in the sanctuary. And so there is a clear correlation between the churches, seals, and trumpets. There are just random pieces of information. They're very specifically designed to show how Christ moves through the sanctuary. So we're going to come to the very first article in the holy place, the seven candlesticks, and we're going to turn on our Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, reading verses 12 through 16. And in my presentations, I don't put the verses up on the screen so you can get your Bibles out and turn and open to them yourselves, but turn to Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, and let's see what it says here. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. Now, we understand the setting here. John is on the Isle of Patmos, and he's in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he hears this great voice like a trumpet behind him, and he turns around to see this voice. In verse 12, he turns to see the voice that spake, and being turned, what did he see? Seven golden candlesticks. Where are the seven golden candlesticks in the sanctuary? In the holy place. So we're, we've seen the, the outer courtyard. Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He was the lamb who was slain, who was worthy to open the book with the seven seals. But he also is found, in verse 13 it says, And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, who do we see? One like unto the Son of Man. Now, notice it doesn't say Jesus Christ. It says the Son of Man. Remember, the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is revealing himself through the book of Revelation here. And in the seven candlesticks, he is being revealed as the Son of Man. And you can read on through verse 16 to see more of a description. When you come to verse 20, you see very clearly... At the last phrase of verse 20, which is the end of chapter 1, it says, The seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches. So the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. Who is in the midst of the seven churches? The Son of Man. And the seven candlesticks are symbolic of where Christ is in the sanctuary, and that is the holy place. So the Son of Man is in the midst of the seven churches. Now in Luke chapter 19 verse 10 and in Matthew chapter 18 verse 11, when it speaks of Jesus as the Son of Man, it says that the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Did you realize that there's a lot of people in the church that are not saved? There's a lot of sick people in the church. That's the best place for them to be, by the way. Don't push them away. Yeah. 
That's where we can find Jesus. Jesus is in the midst of the candlesticks. He's the Son of Man coming to seek and to save that which is lost. So as Jesus is revealing himself, we see a sanctuary pattern developing. He was the Lamb who was slain, so he died to save us. And he's the Son of Man. He can save us now because he died. And he's in the churches seeking to save those who are lost. So that's Jesus in the holy place at the beginning of the churches. So we come to the beginning of the churches and we see Jesus in the holy place in the candlesticks. Now we're going to go to the seven seals. Ken mentioned this a little bit. When we go to Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 after the message to the seven churches, we read after this, I looked and behold a door was open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet, just like the voice of Jesus the trumpet in chapter 1, as, as Ken mentioned. So he hears Jesus again saying, come up hither and I will show you things which must be hereafter. And this is what he sees. When we come to verse 4, he sees the throne of God. And around the throne of God, there are 24 elders sitting and verse 5 says, in front of the throne were seven lamps of fire burning. Now, what was in front of, if you're looking across from the seven candlesticks, what would be across from the seven candlesticks in the holy place? The table of showbread. So my position is that the table of showbread is the throne of God in the holy place. In fact, if you study this in the Old Testament, there are two rows of crowns all the way around the table of showbread in, er, indicating that God the Father and God the Son are there. They are both divine. They are both God. And then the, the 12 loaves of bread, which are six next to each other, are the equality of the Father and the Son. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Jesus says, I and my Father are one. Jesus says, I am seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So you see that with the table of showbread in the book of Revelation. Now, Jesus is revealing himself how does he reveal himself in the seals? In the churches, he revealed himself as the Son of Man. In the seals, he reveals himself as the Lamb who had been slain and as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So Jesus reveals himself even further. Now, here's how we develop things. Jesus was in the courtyard, but now he's come into the holy place. As he comes into the holy place, he the work to do. He's the Son of Man in the churches, coming to seek and to save that which was lost, so that those who are in the churches will shine forth as lights and be witnesses for Him. And then in the seals, we see that He is the Lamb who had been slain. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So through His death, He can bring salvation to those who are lost. And as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, He is the conquering King. So that's how we see Jesus at the beginning of the seals. Now, when we come to the beginning of the trumpets, who do you think we're going to see, and where do, you where do you think we're going to find him? Because we've seen Jesus in the midst of the candlesticks. We've seen Jesus seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus is in the midst of the candlesticks at the beginning of the churches. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God at the beginning of the seals. So where do you think he might be at the beginning of the seven trumpets? So there's only, one, there's only one article of furniture left. That is the altar of incense. So let's go to Revelation chapter 8. 
And you might notice that there's an introduction to the churches, the seals, and the trumpets. For the churches, it's all of Revelation chapter 1. For the seals, it's Revelation chapters 4 and 5. For the trumpets, it's Revelation chapter 8, verses 2 through 6. And then you get into the trumpets. So, when we come to the trumpets... Starting in verse 2 of chapter 8, it says, And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Now notice verse 3, And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne, and the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. Now, what kind of work is this angel doing? Mediation or intercession. He has the censer. So incense is ascending out of his hand, which represents the prayers of his saints. He is interceding on behalf of God's people. Who did the work of intercession in the sanctuary? The high priest. Who's the high priest here? It's Jesus. Now, when we get to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, it says, this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And then verse 26 says, For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. That's our high priest. Jesus is not only the lamb who had been slain in the courtyard. He's not only the son of man who came to seek and to save that which was lost in the midst of the churches. He's not only the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb who had been slain. He is our high priest who is living to make intercession for us. And this is biblical theology. And yes, it is Adventist theology because it shows that Jesus died in the courtyard to pay the price for our sins. And with his blood, he comes into the holy place as the son of man to seek and to save that which was lost, as the lamb who had been slain and the lion of the tribe of Judah to offer salvation to all who will accept his blood through faith, but also he brings salvation through his intercession as our great high priest. Jesus reveals himself through the sanctuary message in the book of Revelation, in the churches and in the seals and in the trumpets, they aren't just code language for deep theological minds to try to figure out what things might represent, and yes, that's fun to study too. But when you look at the big picture, now you can fit in the details. But that's not it. That's the first layer of what Jesus is doing in the sanctuary, in the first 11 chapters. But Jesus has more to say about himself as he reveals himself in this first half of the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus says of himself, there's three titles that he uses. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, 
and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, is Jesus just randomly using some titles about himself for us to say, that's interesting, he's the faithful witness, he's the first begotten of the dead, he's the prince of the kings of the earth, what does that mean? Or does it have a specific application to how Jesus is described through the book of Revelation? Obviously, I believe it has a specific application. Because when we look for another place in the book of Revelation where Jesus is described as the faithful witness, guess where we find that? To the Laodicean message in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, where Jesus says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So Jesus, he's the faithful witness in the churches, especially to the seventh church. He's also the first begotten of the dead. Now, that is good news because in the seals, he was the lamb who had been slain. And in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, we read that there are the souls under the altar crying unto God, how long, O Lord, till you judge and avenge our blood? And the good news is, is that because Jesus is the first begotten of the dead, there will be many others resurrected as well. But he's also the prince of the kings of the earth. And when you get to the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11, chapter, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, it says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So Jesus is the prince of the kings of the earth in the trumpets. Now, interestingly, he's especially the faithful witness to the seventh church, and we're going to see why. He's especially the first begotten of the dead and the seals because the resurrection takes place between the sixth and the seventh seal, and he's especially the prince of the kings of the earth and the seventh trumpet because that's when everything comes to an end, at the end of the seventh trumpet. So let's look at this a little bit more. Let's go back to the seven churches. Yes, Jesus is the son of, the, of man. He's coming to seek and to save those who are lost, to those who are in the seven churches. How does he bring salvation to the seventh church, and to the churches especially, but to the seventh church in particular? He's a faithful witness. Now, what does a witness do? A witness gives testimony in court. Now, does it just so happen that one of the seven churches is living in that judgment hour of earth's history? It's the Laodicean church. Laodicea means the judged people. I'll get into that more tomorrow. Jesus is especially the faithful and true witness to the judgment hour church. That is how he brings salvation. Because when Jesus looks at Laodicea, he doesn't look at our rich, fine, vast numbers of people and wealthy institutions and all of those things and say, wow, this is great. You know what Jesus says? You think you're rich but you're actually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And you know what most people say? That applies to other people, but it doesn't apply to me. And you know what? Because you say it doesn't apply to you, it does. And that's what Jesus is saying to us as a people. Jesus is the faithful and true witness, especially to the seventh church, and the church of the judgment hour is found in the most holy place. So Jesus transitions from the holy place to the most holy place in the seventh church. 
And in the seven seals, he's described as the lamb who had been slain, as the lion of the tribe of Judah as we begin the seals. But then he's also the first begotten of the dead because the resurrection takes place at the second coming when the work of Christ in the most holy place is finished. And in the seven trumpets, interestingly, here's another point that I want to mention. He's, he's described at the beginning of the seven trumpets as an angel who's an intercessor. We're going to talk about this tomorrow morning in Revelation chapter 10 at 9.30. You'll want to be here for this, the mystery of God finished. Do you know how Jesus is described in Revelation chapter 10 at the end of the seven trumpets before he's described as the prince of the kings of the earth or the, as king of kings and lord of lords? He's described in Revelation chapter 10 verse 1 as the mighty angel. In other places in scripture, he's described as the archangel. So at the beginning of the trumpets, he's the angel with it, uh, who's the intercessor with a censer in his hand. And when he moves to the most holy place in Revelation chapter 10, he's described as the mighty angel. But he's also described as the prince of the kings of the earth. Let me just summarize it for you this way. How does Jesus reveal himself in the sanctuary through the book of Revelation? He, just, he reveals himself as the lamb who had been slain from the foundation of the world in the courtyard. But when we come into the holy place, in the candlesticks, he is described as the son of man come to seek and to save that which was lost, who is also the faithful witness, especially to the seventh church of the seven candlesticks, so that we will have salvation and know our true condition in the time of the hour of God's judgment. In the, table, or in the, in the seals, which is the throne of God on the table of showbread, he is described as the lamb who had been slain and as the lion of the tribe of Judah. So he brings salvation through his death, but he's also described as the first begotten of the dead so that all those who have died in Christ have the promise of being resurrected with him. And then as the trumpets begin, he is described as an angel with a censer in his hand. He is our intercessor who ever lives to make intercession for us, knowing that we not only have have a savior who died for us but we have a high priest who is always interceding on our behalf but when his work is finished and he casts the censer into the earth he will come back as king of kings and lord of lords and when we look at the seventh church the sixth and seventh seals and the seventh trumpet, we see that this describes the work of Jesus in the most holy place. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. Jesus is the first begotten of the dead. Jesus is the prince of the kings of the earth. Now, when you look at the big picture of the first half of the book of Revelation, you look at the seven churches and you come to the Laodicean church and you see that this is God's church. This is his judgment hour church. And you start to get excited because Jesus is the faithful and true witness. He's the beginning of the creation of God. He's reminding us that he is the creator, that he's pointing us back to the Sabbath. And yet he says nothing. Nothing good to this church. And he says, you make me want to throw up. And yet, Jesus has an invitation to the seventh church. He says, let me come in. 
And we're going to talk about that tomorrow, but that is connected to the cleansing of the sanctuary. And somehow, when you transition then to the seven seals and you leave God's church kind of hanging, what's going to happen to God's church? You come to the seals and you go through the scope of history and there's this interlude chapter in Revelation chapter 7 where the angel cries, hold the winds until the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. And if you're making the connection, you say, whoa, from that lukewarm church that made Christ want to vomit, out of that church comes the 144,000. And when you come to the seventh trumpet, you see that God does this work. In Revelation chapter 10, it's described, which we'll talk about tomorrow morning, this mighty angel comes down from heaven. He raises up a new movement. And Revelation 10 verse 7 says, in this new movement, the second advent movement, the mystery of God will be finished, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, which is what Christ is saying to the Laodicean church, let me come in. And when we let Christ come in, the mystery of God will be finished and Jesus will then come back as King of kings and Lord of lords. So you look at this big picture. It's like, whoa, Laodicea, they're lukewarm. They make Christ want to vomit. But, and they're God's last day church. But then you come to the seals and you, you find, wow, from God's last day church come the 144,000. And you say, how did God do that? And you find that it's through the work of the mighty angel in the raising up of the second advent movement where the mystery of God will be finished in the lives of God's people. Now, I'm going to read to you a few statements that kind of bring this all together. Testimonies, Volume 1, page 187. This is the message to the Laodicean church and how it relates to the sanctuary message. Those who come up to every point and stand every test and overcome, be the price what it may, have heeded the counsel of the true witness, and they will receive the latter rain and thus be fitted for translation. So if you want to know how to be translated by the grace of God, apply the message of Revelation 3, 14 to 22 to your life. Not to your friend's life who you know is Laodicean, but to you. When Laodicea allows Jesus to come in, he will cleanse his church of sin. So I'm kind of giving you some big picture ideas of where we're going. Then cleansing in the seals. Testimonies, volume 5, page 214. Not one of us will ever receive the seal of God while our characters have one, or st- one spot or stain upon them. It is left with us to remedy the defects in our characters, to cleanse the soul simple of every defilement. Then the latter rain will fall upon us as the early rain fell upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. So that's the work of Christ from the most holy place during the seals so that we can receive the seal of God. And then cleansing in the trumpets. This kind of ties it all together. Mystery of God, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The latter rain is to fall upon the... A mighty angel is to come down from heaven, and the whole earth is to be lighted with his glory. That's Revelation 18.1. Are we ready to take part in the glorious work of the third angel? Are our vessels ready to receive the heavenly dew? Have we defilement and sin in the heart? If so, let us cleanse the soul temple and prepare for the showers of the latter rain. The refreshing from the presence of the Lord will never come to hearts filled with impurity. Now notice this. This is the mystery of God right here. May God help us to die to self that Christ the hope of glory may be formed within. When Christ, the hope of glory, is formed within, an angel will come down from heaven and the earth will be lightened with the glory of God. Now, look at what we've seen here. And I'm just going to 
hit through these slides briefly just so you'll see the whole picture here. This is the sanctuary message in the book of Revelation. Jesus starts off in the holy place in the midst of the candlesticks in the churches, but he ends up in the most holy place for the judgment hour church, the Laodicean church. He begins in the holy place at the table of showbread and the seals, but he ends up as the first begotten of the dead who will resurrect those who are dead in Christ when the 144,000 are sealed in their foreheads. And in the seven trumpets, he begins as an angel, as the intercessor with a censer in his hand, but he moves to the most holy place as the mighty angel to go from the holy place to the most holy place as our great high priest so that he can cast the censer into the earth so that he can come back as king of kings and lord of lords. And then we move into Revelation 14 eventually in the three angels' messages. But notice what we've done here. We've looked at God telegraphing his game plan for how he is going to finish the sin problem here on this earth. You look at the seven churches, you look at the seven seals, you look at the seven trumpets, and there are plenty of sin problems and issues. You look at how the church descends in the churches and in the seals and in the trumpets to the point that by the time you get to Thyatira, they suffer that woman Jezebel, and they, you have the seat of Satan, and in the seals you have the church described as being death. And in the trumpets, these are judgments of God upon a rebellious church. You have the, and you're going to hear about this, but the first four trumpets are judgments on Western Rome, fifth and sixth on the Eastern Roman Empire, and the seventh trumpet is a judgment on spiritual Rome at the end of the world. And you see all of this, and Jesus is saying, you know what? This is what has happened but I have a game plan to prepare people to stand at the end of time. I have a lukewarm people alive at the end of the world, but I am going to send them a straight testimony that will bring a shaking to the church, which is the message of the true witness to the Laodicean church, which will purify a people that will allow Christ to come in. When Christ comes in, then the seals describe that they will be sealed with the seal of God and become the 144,000, which is synonymous with Christ in you, the hope of glory, the mystery of God being finished in the second advent movement. So you come to the end of Revelation chapter 11, and that's the, the churches, the seals, and the trumpets, and that is God's game plan to end the sin problem. And in Revelation chapter 12, the devil says, you want to bet? And so Revelation chapter 12 is this great controversy between Christ and Satan. And you can, it starts off with a woman and she delivers the child and then Christ is caught up to God and to his throne. And then the controversy comes to the earth and then the woman flees to the wilderness and she's there for 1,260 years. And then at the end of the world, God has a remnant people who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, and the devil goes after that group. And isn't it ironic that the two things that are under the greatest attack in the Seventh-day Adventist church today are obedience and the spirit of prophecy? And then Revelation chapter 13 is de the devil's game plan to prevent Christ from doing what he says he's going to do in the first 11 chapters and even the victory he telegraphs in chapter 12. And so you get the first beast, the papacy, and the second beast, the United States of America, and they come together at the end of time to cause all the world to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed rather than the Lamb of God. 
But Revelation chapter 14 describes a special group of people known as the 144,000 who worship the Lamb of God and follow Him whithersoever He goeth. They have followed Him from the cross and the courtyard into the holy place at the seven candlesticks to the table of showbread to the altar of incense and ultimately into the most holy place so that when Jesus comes back it's not going to be a new pattern or a new habit to suddenly start following Jesus. This is God's plan to develop a group of people at the end of time. I'm just going to read the bolded portion of the statement. Maranatha, page 249. There must be a purifying of the soul here upon the earth in harmony with Christ's cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven. Listen, Christ isn't just sitting up there trying to do laundry of the curtains. You realize that? He is working on trying to change our hearts and to touch our hearts with his goodness and his grace so that we will become like him. And I will close with this verse, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That verse encapsulates the Adventist message, it encapsulates the sanctuary message, it encapsulates the work that Christ is trying to do for Adventism in the most holy place of the sanctuary in heaven right now. So that give, that's actually kind of an outline of some of my presentations where we'll get into more detail the rest of the week and you're going to want to hear more from all of the other presenters as well so um, that's my presentation tonight but let me just close by saying this friends never be ashamed of the seventh-day adventist message don't settle for watered-down substitutes that say we can have jesus without doctrine because jesus without doctrine is meaningless Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if truth is divorced from Jesus, you don't have the Jesus of Scripture. And that is the Jesus that we are following, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of Scripture, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.